0: only thing that came into my mind was the word miraculous and then miraculous became a question Got goosebumps, a couple, of you don't you? Does anybody remember that? I don't. I was like seven years old. Um, so I, you know, Bill's the old guy on our staff, and so he he uh, was like, "Let's do this. Do you believe in miracles?" Thing, and so he had to teach me because I I was seven, and I can't remember all. I just remember my mom saying something like, "There was this cool hockey game," and you know, uh, but I don't I don't actually remember any of it. So for those of us who are like 43 years of age and younger. We're just gonna trust Bill that that was a really cool thing that happened. Um, but hey, welcome to Ascent. If uh, Again, if you're new, my name's Jim, and we're really uh, glad that you're here. We're doing a series right now that's looking at Jesus' miracles, so we're calling it Do You Believe in Miracles? And we're looking at the significance of those miracles of what, what, why did they matter then, and why, uh, what does it have to do with us, like now? Uh, what does it matter to people like us now living today? So we're going we're gonna to dive into that today. But first, I want to tell you guys something. I was gone last week. I was up in Idaho. Uh, my niece graduated from high school. So it was really cool to get to go see her and her graduation. But I also got to go and uh, visit their church. And so we went on Sunday morning, and it's this church that's like five years old. It meets in a high school. Do you know how strange it is when you're a guy like me to walk into a church? Because like, this is what I do, right? So to walk in a different church... It's almost impossible to not evaluate everything, and um, the church was awesome. I mean, it was super great church, loved visiting there, uh, so, but it made me really reflect a lot. And so these reflections have nothing to do with that church, everything to do with me and my dysfunction, I guess. Um, but so I'm there, and I'm sitting there, and I just, I start thinking, why do we do this? Why do we get up on a Sunday— when everybody else sleeps or mows their lawn, and we get in our cars, and we come down to an old warehouse, and we meet here, and we start by singing together, and it's just interesting to think, do you, where do you sing with other people? Like, where else do you do that? You know, I guess if you're in a choir, or if you're like a big karaoke bar person, you know, you might sing with other people, but It's a unique thing to come together and sing together, and then you listen, you know, some guy, usually a guy, gets up and gives a talk, and it's like a 30-minute kind of thing, and it's, you know, not, where where else do you listen to, like, somebody else talking to you like that? I guess in class, or, like, if you're watching a TED Talk or something, but uh, there's a reason, it's just interesting to me, 90-some percent of the culture doesn't do this. Why do we do this? It just made me think, uh, man, I, I want to make you guys a deal. Here's our heart behind why do we gather every week. Our heart behind this is, man, we want so badly to create a place where people can come and connect to other people, develop friendships, but do that in a way that actually gives you a, a real experience with a God who is real. What what we wanna do is come together for an experience with Jesus, where you grow with him and you grow with other people. That's the reason why we meet every week. I just wanna make you a deal. If it ever becomes about who's up front, or a performance, or trivial knowledge, or any of that stuff, let's just shut it down. Like, (laughs) I, I just was struck this week by going, man, my heart is so much behind, let's create an environment where people can meet other people and grow with Jesus. That's why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And if you're new, I want to say that to you just because that's the heartbeat of this church and our staff. That's what we're after. Okay? There's my little uh, preamble. So, but I want to I dive into this. And again, the goal is, how do we today, in this time, actually encounter a living God who's real and knows us? and grow with them. That's, that's what we're after. So I want to look at, uh, this passage today, this miracle. And for me, you guys, this miracle is not about the miracle. It's not about the cool thing Jesus does. It's a sign of something that is fantastic about who he is. And this is, this will give you a little glimpse into my heart of why I love Jesus. And, um, you know, Bill gave you a little bit of his story a couple of weeks back. It, this story kind of, story in the scripture intertwines with my story a little bit too. So I'll give you a, a little bit of that. But uh, this is this is my favorite miracle. That's why I chose it. Uh, and so it's also Jesus' first miracle. And so let's let's dive into it. This is from John chapter two. Uh, uh, John wrote a gospel. It's called uh, kind of a book that chronicles Jesus' life. And this is in chapter 2 of that, and starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. Uh, the next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Just kind of right down the road from where Jesus lived. Uh, Jesus' mother was there, that's Mary, and Jesus and his disciples, his friends, the people who were following Jesus, learning from Jesus, were also invited to the celebration. Now, um, here's something you've got to kind of understand about uh, this time frame. Uh, we always enter anything with our own kind of assumptions and cultural lens on how we view things. And so uh, you got to, when you're reading the Bible, you've got to understand a little bit about the background. So uh, today at five o'clock, I'm going to a wedding at Boulder Country Club. Some of you guys might remember Lizzie Clem. Uh, Lizzie was on our staff here, worked with middle and high schoolers. She's so awesome. She's getting married today. So cool. Five o'clock. Bill's doing the uh, ceremony. So if you showed up this morning and you're bummed that it wasn't Bill preaching, just crash the wedding this afternoon. You can just come and hang out, right? And hear Bill talk. So that's five o'clock and uh, we'll show up, you know, the the ceremony, how long the ceremonies last? Half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that. And then you have to wait like three hours while they take pictures somewhere off in the back. Oh, gosh, shoot me on that. <laughs> like, I just, so, and then finally you'll get to the, like, uh, you know, time where you get to go eat and stuff. Usually, what, like 9, 930 is when the music comes on and the 20-year-olds start dancing? Is that when that happens? Because that's when Karen and I kind of, you know, sneak out the back door. So we're going to spend three, four, five hours-ish, I don't know, tonight at this wedding. Um, that's our image of wedding, this is, not what the, this is not true of how weddings worked during Jesus' life. Weddings weren't three, four, five hours. Weddings were three, four, five days, maybe a week. You showed up for a wedding, and that's a commitment, right? You're taking vacation time for a, a wedding, a long one. And so they show up. The, the other thing about a wedding that was different then is these days, if we've got a wedding, like tonight, it'll be all about Lizzie. It'll be all about the bride. And the groom is like, not even really, is the groom even there? You know, I mean, I think you could do a wedding without the groom in our, the way it works. Like, it's all about the bride and the poor parents, right? They got to pay for it and everything else. So during Jesus' day, it wasn't that way. The weddings were actually about the groom. It was all about the groom. Groom paid for it. You know, some of you guys who are like parents of daughters are like, "Man, I wish I was born then." Uh, so that that's kind of how it worked. And the groom, the groom's standing in the culture was judged on how good the wedding went. So there's they they kind of worked on something called honor shame. You do good things in the culture, you get honor. You do bad things, you you get shame. And oh, you don't want shame. Shame's a really bad thing in this culture. And so, running out of wine would be a shameful thing and here's what it says the wine supply ran out during the festivities i don't know day three day four so jesus mother love this here's mary mary comes up saunters up to jesus and says to him they have no more wine so here's the interesting thing um the world has always had a lot of viewpoints on jesus Some people think he's just a good guy. Some people think he's, you know, a moral teacher. Mary knew something about Jesus that at this point in time, nobody else knew. Mary had had the kind of conversations and had seen the kind of things to know, this is not just a normal human being. This is just not a prophet. This is the chosen one. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. In fact, this is God, God who left heaven And came to earth in the person of Jesus. Mary knows. And so in coming to Jesus and saying, they have no more wine. She's starting to push him in a direction to say, it's time to start letting other people know what I know. Look what Jesus replies to her. This is John 2 verse 4. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Was he just rude to his mom? You know, like, man, if I'm a middle school boy, I could latch onto this passage and be like, yeah, Jesus did it too, mom. You know, and like, is that what's going on here? Dear woman, is that what Jesus is saying? No. Again, culturally, you got to understand what's going on. It was very normal to address your mom as woman. In fact, Jesus does it a number of times through the scripture. In fact, Jesus, when he's on the cross, looks out and sees his mom and refers to her as dear woman. Now, unless you think he's getting like one last shot in at her before he dies, that's not what's going on. This is just a term that he's using. And in fact, the next, uh, the, the next line tells, gives you an insight into the sweetness, the tenderness of the relationship between Jesus and his mom. Is look, what his, look what Mary does. Verse 5. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's kind of like she's like just, ah, whatever, Jesus. Goes to the servants and just kind of starts working behind the scenes, you know, like moms do to kind of make things happen. And that's exactly what Mary's doing. It's, there's a, Do you get the playfulness there? A little bit of tender playfulness there. Uh, verse 6. Here's what Jesus does. Standing nearby were six stone water jars. How convenient. That's perfect. Used for Jewish ceremonial washing, which is a total tangent that we won't talk about. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. You got six of these huge jugs that carry 20 to 30 gallons. I mean, think of your milk jug, your little milk gallon. Now, let's times that by how many? 120 to 180. Let's just say 150 You've got 150-ish gallons of water. Huge amount. This is is significant. Jesus tells the servants, fill those with water. When the jars would be filled, he said, now dip some out and uh, take it on over to the master of ceremonies. I love this just very subtle Jesus. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies, this is like the wedding planner guy. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine. Jesus does his first miracle. Takes water and speeds it up and turns it into wine. Not knowing where the, the master of ceremonies, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, which by the way, can I just say for a second, this is another reason why you've got to love Jesus. It's not the elite at the party that find out who he is. It's the servants. It's the people on the margin. It's kind of the, you know, the lowest on the social ladder. The servants know what's going on. Master of Ceremonies doesn't. And he calls the bridegroom over. (laughs) Man, this guy just hit the jackpot and he doesn't know it. A host Always serves the best wine first, says the master of ceremonies. Then when everyone has had a little or had a lot to drink and they're tipsy, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, my friend, you have kept the best wine until now. And notice the Bible does not say the guy's like, oh, I don't know how that happened. He just, yeah, that's right. You know? I'd bring out the best wine last, of course, right? How, uh, how graceful. Another scene of Jesus' grace where he's not drawing attention to himself. But the servants know, and nobody else knows. I love him. And then the last little verse says, This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples who were in on it. They believed in him. I love that it says uh, it's a miraculous sign. It doesn't just say uh, that Jesus did a miracle and wow, wasn't that cool? This is a sign. It's a sign of something. So, so we got to figure out the sign of what. What is this a sign toward? What do we got to know from this? Uh, I told you I want to tell you a little bit of my story with this. This, this miracle is so important to me personally, you guys. Um, I, I'll tell you a little bit. Like when I was, um, when I was growing up as a high school kid, uh, grew up in Boulder, and um, I, I would say for me, and maybe some of you can relate to this, I always kind of believed that there was a God, um, I, I dabbled a little bit with the idea of atheism, you know, that there is no God. I, I, I dabbled with that a little bit, but I could never bring myself intellectually to make the leap of faith and think that all this just came from nothing. It just seemed too improbable for me. And so for me, what was more probable was that, yeah, there, there is a God that did this. And I believe that, but I didn't want anything really to do with it. Because my impression of Christians was that they were actually so strange. My impression of religious people was that, man, I never actually want to be like that. Uh, I had a friend in high school, and and this just reinforced this idea for me. I had a friend in high school, and uh, she and I were buddies, and we all kind of hung in the same crowd, and... uh, She ended up kind of getting mixed up with these uh, guys who, at the time, I'm like, ah, they're like religious people. And so she became friends with them. And all of a sudden, she kind of came once and announced, like, hey, I'm a Christian now. And it was so interesting. Uh, I'm telling you, the next day, somehow she developed a southern accent. (laughs) I'm serious. She, uh, it's... It was like all of a sudden a Southern Baptist thing had happened in her. And if some of you guys are familiar with Beth Moore, this Bible teacher, um, Beth has a Southern accent, and that's great because she's from Texas. But this friend of mine grew up in Boulder, and all of a sudden she's talking like Beth Moore. And I I just remember thinking, that is so weird. And uh, that, what? You know, I remember thinking, there's no way I'm doing that. If that's what it means to become a Christian, if that's what it means to become a religious person, I don't, want, I don't want to do that because I actually have a personality that's my own that I'm not quite willing to give up on. And maybe it's true that God actually gave me a personality that is unique, that I shouldn't lose. Uh, you know, so that was kind of uh, strike one for me, it was like, I, I'm not going to lose my personality like my friend did. But then I kept seeing things that made me go, man, to be a religious, quote-unquote, person means that I'm going to have to kind of do stuff that seems totally strange to me. Um, one, of them, one of them was this. I, uh, I was in a class, and we started, this was again in high school about the same time, in a class, and we started talking about ancient church history, and uh, we started talking about, these guys who were monks in the fourth and fifth century. And the whole goal of these monks was to prove to everybody else how devoted to God they were. Like it was like this competition who can be more devoted to God than the other person? And so some of them got this idea, these monks called the Stylites. These monks got the idea you know what? We're going to prove how, um, how devoted to God we are. I'm going to build a little mini tower, a pillar. And so there's this little pillar that they created, and up on the top of the pillar, there was about a, I don't know, you know, six by six, 30-some square foot little area. So imagine about a third of the size of, like, a kid's bedroom. And so that's up on top of this tower, open air, no walls. They are not drywalling back then, just out in the open. And these monks would go up on the tower and never come down their idea of how to prove that they were so devoted to god was to climb this tower and live there so uh, imagine me as a high school kid i'm hearing about this monk called daniel the stylite who went up on this tower on this little you know area that he had and he lived there for 33 years and his followers would like you know pulley system up food to him and he would he, he never came down. 33 years living on top of the pillar. And I remember thinking, no! <laughs> my image of Christianity was I lose my personality. I have to do stuff like that. Do I have to wear a robe? Do... Uh, I guess I could never drink alcohol. Man, definitely not smoke. I mean... I, I started to put together a case against what it meant to be Christian based on the rules that I was seeing. All the time thinking, wow, but I still think there's a God. Guys, and then here's the beauty. And then there's John chapter 2. And then there's this passage that we just read. (laughs) You get a Jesus, the God of the universe, Mary had it right, who had come to earth, and is doing something completely different than what these followers I was seeing doing. The God of the universe himself was living in a different way. Here you see in John chapter 2, Jesus shows up where? At a party. He endorses the party. He endorses the wedding. He turns the water not into grape juice. He turns the water into wine. And you know what? It's not bad wine either. He turned it into really good wine. Guys, Jesus doesn't climb a tower and try to separate himself from the culture. Jesus actually entered into our culture and related to us. Man, all of a sudden, if that's the kind of God we've got, I got hope. You know, this miracle, here, here's the significance of this miracle for me. This miracle is not about saving the world. This miracle isn't about like, oh, I'm going to raise somebody from the dead. Or I'm going to cast a demon out of somebody. Or I'm even going to make a guy who can't see now see. This miracle is about, hey guys, come here and check this out. Watch this. This miracle is the kind of thing my middle school boys would do. I love it. This miracle says to me, there is no part of my life, no part of my personality, no part of who we are as human beings and the personality that God has given you that should be sheltered from God. God of the universe guy you can relate to man I love that I love that about Jesus but how do we get so out of whack where sometimes we live in such a way that looks religious but it actually isn't the heartbeat of who Jesus is man I I tell you here's 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 how I am maybe you'll think this isn't normal for me, this is normal. I, I just I wrote down some things that, um, that I love. It'll give you a little sense into my little personality. And I think it's a personality that God made. I'm saying there's rough edges on it that need to shift. But here, here's a little glimpse into my personality. Last night, I was at a party. I saw some kids shooting each other with squirt guns. I love squirt guns. I love dirt roads. I love watching SportsCenter when somebody throws a brushback pitch in baseball. I love that. I love playing cornhole. I love a double-double with whole grilled onions. I love campfires and road trips. And if you haven't had the um, Caramel Toffee Crunch bender from Good Times, you need to go over there after the service. I love sarcastic humor. I love the Weather Channel app. I really like Shark Week. I like Louis L'Amour novels and One Republic and the Jerry of the Day on Instagram. I love baseball and football and basketball and this like building campaign makes me want to play Powerball. Um, I, 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 I'm serious, I, you know. I love, um, I love frozen strawberry margaritas. I love brownies with ice cream and aspen trees and bear stories and fly fishing for trout and backpacking. I love traveling with Karen. I love thunderclaps. I like new ideas like self-driving cars and augmented reality and the hyperloop. Like, if you haven't heard of this stuff, you're going to hear this stuff. It's cool. I love uh, barbecues and soft-serve cones. I love watching I, I, my shows I watch, I like watching Survivor. I know, I'm a little old school for some of you. I like Survivor. I like Outlander. And I like SportsCenter. And this miracle tells me, I don't, however Jesus feels about this list, This miracle tells me that I can involve him in my personality. He had a personality. He wasn't on a tower away from him. God's not asking you to develop a southern accent. God is saying, be you. And involve God. Man, there are ways I can guarantee in your life, maybe some ways, that we build walls between our personality and who God is. And God is saying, no, stop being religious. If you want to break through what it means to be religious and actually come into what it means to have a relationship with a real God, with Jesus, we've got to recognize and let him deal with everything about us. If you're a guy that likes football and nachos, we have a God of the universe who is a guy you can relate to. I love that about him. I love that about this miracle. Do you see it here? I love it. For me, part of the sign is to the, not only to the identity of Jesus. Okay, this isn't a normal guy that he can do this. So his disciples believe, his mom believes. The sign for me is that I have a God of the universe that I actually can be friends with. That it's not just I'm going to climb the tower and show my devotion to him. I'm going to involve him in every single aspect of my life. Gosh, it's beautiful about who Jesus is. Some of you guys are like, oh, yeah, of course. I've heard this before. I get it. I just want us to think what areas of our lives do we hold back? Areas of our personalities do we hold back? Because it matters for you and your relationship with Jesus, but it matters to other people too. I think we are chock full in our world, in our school, in our work on your neighborhood. We are chock full of people who are dying to get a glimpse. Man, if you're a Christian, does it mean that you're actually relatable and normal? One of the greatest things in the world that we can do as people following Jesus is actually be somebody that other people can relate to. I had this funny thing uh, a couple weeks ago. I was uh, came home from church. It was a Sunday and. I pulled up into my driveway. We have just kind of got a new house that we moved into. And uh, I pull in the driveway, and my neighbor comes out. And I've talked to him a couple times. He knows that I'm a pastor. and uh, He's a super cool guy. And he comes across the street, hops off his lawnmower or whatever, walks up and says, uh, hey, man. Uh, and, I, and I was wearing uh, my Nolan Arenado jersey, uh, baseball player for the Rockies. Uh, and so I pop out of my car, and he goes, hey, man, uh, Yeah what you doing? I'm like, ah, oh, I just got back from church. He's like, it's Sunday. I'm like, yeah. You were at church. Yeah. You wore that jersey to church. Preached in it. Yeah. He goes, really? I go, yeah. And he turns around and walks away. <laughs> and I just saw the wheel spinning of stereotypes being broken. There are people around you that God has put in your life who have a stereotype of what it means to be religious. And it's been reinforced over and over again by things they see in the culture. Guys who climb towers and live up there. Man, you got the chance. You got the chance to show them something different. That the God of the universe is a guy who's relatable. And it can start by you being relatable, but it doesn't happen when we build those obstacles between ourselves and God. Those obstacles that we put up between our own personality and who God made us to be, thinking that God can't relate to us at all, those obstacles aren't just a matter of your own personal growth. Those obstacles will become walls for other people if they're not dealt with. They did for me. Lord, how could you use us How could you use us to be a church that breaks those things down? You know, here's what I want to do. I want to just take a second, and um, I got no agenda for you today. I guess my only agenda or to-do list is I want us walking out of this room with just a taste of more of a love for this Jesus than when we walked in here. And and, and that's my hope and prayer, that there'd be something that would... um, Something that might shift in you around something in our lives that we go, okay, God, maybe you can relate. So I want to take a a moment and just, let me give you a little window of silence here. Maybe it's just a thank you. God, I'm so glad that you're like that. We could have got stuck with a different God, but we got you. Uh, Maybe that's what you're going to say in just this moment of silence. Or maybe there's some area in your life where you've been holding back. Or maybe there's somebody in your life where you go, God, can I show them what it means to be a follower of you in a way that doesn't make them run for the doors. Um, so let's do that. Let, I want to pray for us and just give you a little bit of silence here, and then I'll close us. So God, we are so grateful that you are relatable. And Lord, we, uh, we want to commit ourselves to you today. Hear us just in this little moment of silence as we talk to you uh, about whatever this has brought up in our hearts. Lord, we give you these things, and uh, we're so grateful for who you are, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.